Welcome to the Unheard podcast and uh, my name is Tim Montgomery, editor of Unheard and uh, joined as always by Aisha. Hi Aisha. Hello Tim, how are you? I'm enjoying the return of cold, damp, wet, grey weather. Um, in ret- in, if I have to choose between the hot weather we had in August and July in the UK when I couldn't sleep at night and this... I would definitely have this. Well, being brought up in Scotland, I fully agree with you. <laughs> Remember, I brought, was brought up in a climate similar to that of Mordor, basically. <laughs> so this lovely swirling mist, this dreek weather is absolute joy for me. So this is a first area of absolute agreement between us. I know, we've had a bit of disagreement, haven't we? We have, yes, but this is, this is unity. <laughs> a moment of... Beauty. But we can have disagreements, and we can educate each other about disagreements, and we can move on. Uh, even if we haven't entirely re- been re-educated yet. Yet. Yes. <laughs> yet is the operative words. We're and all on a journey. We're all on a journey. And in terms of education, um, we are delighted this week to be joined by our colleague Peter Franklin. Hello. Hello, Hello Peter. Who edits the Unpacked page um, on Unheard, which every day... Um, tries to bring some of the best writing and ideas that Peter can find um, all over the world to unheard readers. Is that a good summary, Peter, of, of, of what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we want our own content to be meaty, to be about what's important rather than what's new. But we're not so arrogant as to believe we're the only people in the world doing this. Um, there's a lot of brilliant content out there. I feel that it doesn't often get the attention it deserves. And having worked in politics, um, politicians are much more concerned about what's going to be on the front page of The Sun or The Daily Mail or The Guardian tomorrow and not on the really meaty, well-researched articles that have some sort of analytical depth to them. Um, that seems to pass most of politics by, and that's a real shame. Do you agree with that, Aisha? And you, you were a uh, you were a press officer, um, you know, for the, the the leadership of the Labour Party until r- quite recently, and it was your job to worry about what was on those front pages. Well, absolutely. I mean, I was a press officer in the civil service before I became a, a political advisor, and even back, you know, in sort of the late nineties, right up until you know when I left two years ago. The news agenda, the the news cycle gets shorter and shorter and faster and faster. And politicians barely have time really to pick up a newspaper and read a full article. You know, they will scan the front pages. Um, Interestingly, I think Twitter has changed things quite a lot Mm. and has been quite useful for politicians who have a very short attention span and they just want to magpie like you know pick up the glittery headlines of what's hot and sometimes they might stumble across a more in-depth piece but it's something that has got to have you know picked up quite a bit of popularity to sort of break Mm. through on their timelines or their special advisors timelines. Tony, I've found since I've started worrying about uh, what Unheard is worried about, uh, a a culture drenched in news, I read the newspapers a lot less, and I actually use Twitter a lot, a little bit, I think like the politicians you've just described. I wait for a 
critical number of people I like or friends just to say this is a really good piece. Yeah. And then I'll go and read it. It's a little bit like DVD box sets. I'm never someone who will delve into a new series when it started on Netflix or or wherever. I'll wait until you know we're on the third season of The Sopranos or The Wire, and I'll eventually sort of start <laughs> diving. And I'm finding that now with my attitude towards comment pieces etc and to be honest if they're not relevant 24 48 hours after they're written they're probably not worth reading at all anyway so being fast and first doesn't seem to matter to I me much you at get, the moment. you get that sort of formal don't you fear of well, if missing you're a, out, fear yeah. of missing out in terms of well i haven't read this article i haven't read you know watched this box set i haven't you know we have a culture which is very very dominated by that but let like for example take the Ruth Davidson essay which she did for Unheard now that was a wee while ago but it's still when you read it today it's still as still fresh, fresh as it was yeah, yeah. And, and that's what you're trying to achieve Peter and we've chosen three of your pieces from recent days on which we're going to begin a Jeremy Paxman interrogation of you on golly no no <laughs> <laughs> you can relax um, one on yimbyism uh, that's correct yimby with a y not nimbyism with an n um, the opioid epidemic in, um, that's largely affecting America. Um, but interestingly, it's, I think um, we just reached uh, Justin Trudeau's two-year anniversary as Prime Minister of Canada. Doesn't time fly? Yes. Two years? Gosh. And um, he, he, I think, is, being, he is talking about the opioid epidemic in Canada as one of his country's biggest problems as well. Mm. And then tech companies and, and what kind of tax they pay. So... Tell us first, um, and I should say to all listeners, by the way, if you go to the Unheard website, we will uh, not only, under under the link to this podcast, we will link to the three pieces um, we're highlighting just to make it easy for you. But uh, tell us what Yimbyism is, Peter. And is this a new expression or is this something you just picked up? Well, Nimbyism, which we all know about, is not in my backyard. Um, Yimbyism is obviously the opposite yes in my backyard and it's a um, growing movement um, especially uh, led by younger people millennial age people people, um, people like me and Aisha well um, uh, certainly Aisha um, <laughs> right answer Peter <laughs> such the right answer <laughs> and they're beginning to get organised um, in favour of developments instead of against them. Um, there's an awful lot of talk of how support for Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders is motivated by the um, housing crisis, the growing unaffordability of uh, rents and uh, buying homes. And um, But where are the movements specifically targeted at that problem? Um, so far, they haven't made much of an impact, whereas groups like the CPRE that typically oppose suddenly Greenfield the, developments... The, the Council of Protection of Rural England. I think they're now called the Campaign for oh, the Protection of Rural okay. England. But They've anyway. gone millennial as well. <laughs> yes. But anyway, um, those are the sort of people that most elected politicians are afraid of. Um, they're the ones that fill the post bags. Um, they're the ones that can shift votes, especially um, with local campaigns on particular developments. Are, are, they, in the, are they in the right places, though? Because one of the things you say in your piece is that one manifestation of this Yimbyism is uh, Yimby's heading to planning meetings en masse to argue for 
for more housing, but if kind of they're away from the homes where they've had to move out of, for example, the home areas they've had to move out because yes. if they're not actually registered voters in there in the constituencies where MPs or uh, representative of Congress need to feel the heat, maybe they, they, they won't feel the heat. Well, I mean, there's a lot of... Um, if, if you look at um, movements in and out of London, for instance, where we are right now, um, whereas 20-somethings tend to flood into um, the capital, um, once they hit 30, the, uh, the net is an outflow. Um, these people are moving probably to start families, um, and they are actually moving back into those seats, um, those constituencies, those political areas, where actually I think their campaigns could make a difference. Because the opposite, the, the opposite point of view that, you know, we shouldn't build anything anywhere, um, that's exactly those sort of suburban and rural seats where these campaigns can be um, most effective. And we desperately need to hear from the other side of the equation. But what seems to be interesting is there's this sort of sweet spot of a definite genuine policy problem in terms of not enough affordable housing. And that's not just NIMBYism, it's also land banking and lots of other kind of issues like that as well. But there is also, I think, a cultural um, definition point for a lot of these young people, which is NIMBYism is really associated with a certain older person. It's associated with kind of individualism. And this whole, there's a pushback against that. And it's almost like this YIMBYism stuff is quite a direct sort of knee-jerk you know, reaction against that, saying, right, I'm going to do things differently. Mm. I'm going to be countercultural to what has gone before me and what you think. I'm going to challenge this notion that people are selfish. Actually, we're going to make virtues of ourselves by saying, yeah, bring it on, build in my backyard, build in my back garden. Well, um, I'd like to think that's true. Um, but I think when you look at the NIMBYs, um, a lot of them will say that they are being altruistic. They are trying to save precious countryside, um, valued landscapes. Um, so oh, I think virtue... quite a lot of it is they don't want something blocking their nice view. Well, there's some of them, but like in, in my hometown, there's currently a massive battle over a piece of, well, it had a youth club long disused on it. It's adjacent to a bit of parkland, not a very beautiful piece of parkland. And yet there's a vociferous campaign to stop this being turned into housing. And it's being led, as far as I can tell, by young families. So it's not necessarily disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, who's objecting to this new house housing. It's just an assumption that new development makes places worse. And, 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 and not without um, uh, good cause, because you look at some of the developments of the post-war period, they were really ugly. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things that people should legitimately worry about is that those sorts of developments are going to go up in their, in their backyard. But if the Create Streets, the charity um, run by Nick Boyd-Smith, um, I should link to that in, in the blog as well, is, is a good example of is is if you can build beautiful housing, we're perfect, and it's perfectly possible to build beautifully designed housing, it's the best way of building confidence. 
you know, for people to embrace development as well of course the second big thing it has supporting infrastructure so people don't think their local schools or roads or hospitals are going to be overwhelmed but this requires money and I think you. Know, I think another rare point of, of agreement. I think one of the things that has given development, well, two things have given development a really, really bad name. One is just horrible architecture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're absolutely right. When there's very few new developments that people look at and think, "Gosh, that's that is really nice on the eye," and that will stand the test of time. You know, in about twenty years' time, it's all going to be falling apart, rusting, and it's going to look really manky. And I'm going to take a picture of what I'm looking at. Now you're looking you, at me. I'm looking. Very dare you. But behind you is an exact example of architecture you would not want to see anywhere close to you. You, of course, compensate for it marvelously. Did I get out of that quickly? Uh, now the second thing, moving swiftly on, is um, as you said, you know, beautiful housing with all the supporting infrastructure is very important. But the housing has to be affordable as well. That is a huge problem. That's one of the biggest issues that's driving a lot of this as well. And there's a solution to making this all affordable. Government or local government has to buy land cheaply. And it can do this by buying it at agricultural use values, if we're talking about green belts um, or green fields. Um, but currently it doesn't do that and supposedly there are some legal obstacles to that but those through legislation could be dealt with Um, and this is something that governments especially the British government or other jurisdictions where land prices have gone absolutely um, ridiculously high you have to stop speculators from taking the big uplift in values mm. when land is granted planning permission. Once you capture that value and use it for the common good, yes, you can afford to build beautifully, and yes, you can afford to build affordably. Um, and that's the key to it. It's not so much planning, it's land. It always comes down to land. So we're in agreement then. Beautiful, affordable, and infrastructure. We have consensus. Hurrah! Peace in our time. Right. And can I finish with another acronym? Some people describe themselves as BIMBIES. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bit worried about where this is going. Don't don't say anything. (laughs) I'm making an intervention. I'm making a gender-based intervention. I'm trying to save you from yourself. (laughs) It does, of course, stand for beauty in my backyard. And... We could all do with some of that. <laughs> We're all bimbies then. <laughs> <laughs> Here's to bimbyism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've had an illustration. We're recording on Thursday, um, 19th of October. And um, quite surprisingly, um, we have a Labour new Prime Minister in New Zealand, um, Jacinda. I'm forgetting her name all of a, all of a sudden, but um, she's not good. But one of the key planks of the New Zealand Labour Party, her party, which is now in a three-party coalition, in New Zealand was to ban foreign purchase of existing properties and it was a huge driver by all accounts of um, the vote that uh, unexpectedly good showing that her party made in the election so this is an issue really of, of global sig- global significance you think that New Zealand wouldn't necessarily have a housing problem given its uh, 
number of sheep. <laughs> that wasn't exactly where <laughs> I was going, but yeah, uh, the land mass, uh, population density, but it has, and so a fascinating issue. Fascinating and disturbing, but perhaps not as disturbing as our second uh, subject matter. Now, this is a topic you keep returning to, Peter, and I'm, I'm glad you um, have. Other than, I think, the decline in life expectancy that we saw in the former Soviet Union when the, soon after the Berlin Wall came down, when that country really went into reverse, the countries of the former Soviet Union went into reverse. Um, a year or so ago, uh, the Nobel Economic Laureate, uh, Angus Dayton, pointed out that life expectancy among certain middle-aged Americans was actually falling for the first time in, in, in post-war period. And this was partly explained by the number of Americans now dying from drug overdoses. Not entirely drug overdoses, but they were a leading cause. And um, it's getting worse. Absolutely. Um, the, I, I should explain that opioids are, well, opiates are drugs, some of them legal, some of them illegal, derived from opium. Opioid also includes um, synthetic chemicals that are designed to work like opiates. So that's why they call it the opioid epidemic. Um, and it's something that's rarely taken hold um, in America. Um, and the reason why it seems to be quite specific to that country, although, as you said before, it's beginning to spread to Canada, is because um, the uh, pharmaceutical industry there, the medical industry, um, was uh, very effective in pushing um, legal opiate painkillers. Um, and a lot of uh, Americans got hooked on these pills um, and the theory is that this then primed the population for um, illegal drug dealers to come in with heroin and other um, similar drugs um, including now the synthetic opioids like fentanyl which are um, well, fentanyl is about 50 to 100 times more powerful than opium, and therefore it's really easy to overdose on something that powerful, um, with the result that we see this horrific death toll, um, which is, I think, pretty much without precedent, although you, you mentioned the, the, the Russian pre uh, pre precedent, but that was, um, that was a different form of addiction, mostly alcohol. Uh, vodka, uh, yeah. That's right. Although, you know, th there's there's an idea that these are all what, what is called deaths of despair, and mm -hmm. that would also include um, suicide, um, alcohol poisoning, and drug overdoses. So, you know, we, for understandable reasons, look at the, the killings in uh, Las Vegas recently, the, the gun crime incidents in America, but this is a much greater killer. Absolutely. In number, yes. in, you know, in terms yes. of Americans dying, drugs is yes. the big one at the moment. For and it's it's um, it's all over the age range as well. I mean, this is not just um, young people. This is, you know, um, the middle aged, even quite um, older people, um, and in so called sort of respectable communities, um, a long way from 
you know, the stereotypical picture of um, drug use in the inner cities. This is really right into heartland America, mm-hmm. and it's, it's rotting communities from the inside out. And, and recognised that one of the drivers of why people worried about their communities turned to Donald Trump. Well, yes. I mean, when you see something like this, um, you know, people say that um, populists exaggerate uh, when they talk about cultural decline. Mm-hmm. If your community is in the grip of the opioid epidemic, then cultural decline is very, very real and visible all around you. And I think, you know, this is an, I mean, it's just a huge human crisis. Um, And it's linked to decline of communities, it's linked to decline of opportunities and jobs and all of that feeds mental health issues. And, you know, there's, there's so many interconnecting issues. And I suppose the question that inevitably comes up, you know, we have huge issues with drugs in this country as well. We see a drug called Spice, um, mm-hmm. you know, coming over to, to these shores. Absolutely horrific stories. The police will tell you that, um, you know, there are huge numbers of, of people who are affected by this very addictive, very dangerous drug. You know, what what do we do on the war of drugs? Is it time to have a fundamental rethink about it? That's an area which again, politicians dare not ever even think about going down, but who in society is going to have that serious discussion? Well, you, you've had a bit of a d- debate with Ian Birrell, one of our columnists about this, haven't you? Yes. Uh, Peter, and um, I, I think your view is that um, what we've had in the opioid crisis is actually something of what Ian Birrell recommends. Ian recommends decriminalisation. Um, but what you've had with the opioids is a legal drug being handed over by doctors to their patients who actually because of the way the American health system works it's you know private sector driven see their patients more as customers than patients so they give them what they want rather than what they necessarily need and you therefore you know have people coming along with sports injuries they get more uh, pain relief than perhaps is good for them they become therefore addicted on this heavy dosage and they need to continue to receive that kind of mm. heavy dosage. And it ends up with this extraordinary fact you have in your latest piece of, of people looking for elephant tranquilizers. You know, yes, you know, yeah. Actually becoming, a, you know, using those, you know, that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a step up. Yes, well, I think or there's... Down. A, well, indeed. Um, there's a misconception that um, if there's a legal supply of drugs, then that will displace the illegal trade. Um, what the opioid epidemic has demonstrated is that actually the two coexist and that if you run out of your um, your prescription of some kind of um, legal painkiller, well, there's your friendly neighbourhood drug dealer ready to take over with heroin or fentanyl or whatever it is. Um, and uh, spice, of course, was legal. It was one of these so-called legal highs. Mm. Um, we got so concerned with its effects, um, and it um, and it was made illegal. Um, but you know, it's it's still with us, um, and of course, it's um, it, it, it's well known as one of the main prison drugs. So there you have one of the most controlled 
regulated environments that you can imagine and still drugs are rife. Um, so I think maybe the sort of legalization debate is missing the point. Um, it assumes that governments will be able to regulate supply effectively and that they will push the criminals out. This doesn't seem to be the case. Um, if the supply is there, from whatever source people tend to use it, if it can be interrupted, um, then they won't. It was a point made by Damien Thompson in his book on addiction he published a few years ago. He cited the case of um, American GIs returning from Vietnam addicted to, well, so-called addicted to heroin, which was obviously ready, readily available out there. They come back to the Midwest, which at the time didn't have a supply of opiates or opioids, and suddenly the addiction problem disappeared. Um, you know, people will take if it's made easily available to them. We've got to find ways of not making it easily available, and that is the main concern, not whether it's legal or illegal. Okay. We're running out of time, and we've only done two topics. They're, almost, they're, they're, they're too interesting. But we really should. We should get Ian Burrell along to debate with you one time, I think. That would be, that would be he, interesting. He takes a completely <laughs> contrary view to you yes. on, 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 yes. on this question, which is what well, obviously we're trying to promote it. I know different voices wrestling with these, these vital issues. And um, taxing multinational tech giants is, um, is certainly one of those issues huge at the moment. Um, next week on Unheard, we finally, belatedly, um, launch our um, feature on Facebook and the questions that Mark Zuckerberg would have to answer if he's serious about his run to be president. You, do you fancy a president, Mark Zuckerberg? No, Alicia? No? no, I don't, actually. I You'd feel probably choose him over Donald Trump. If, uh, if you I'd choose pretty much anyone <laughs> over Donald Trump. Would you choose me over Donald Trump? Oh, that is a tough one. <laughs> 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 oh. Now you're testing. <laughs> well, I, I just think with, uh, I, I feel that American politics is learning nothing from the lessons of what has just happened with Hillary and the idea that Mark Zuckerberg is now being touted as a sort of great white hope for... Mainly being touted by himself. But true, yes. but to yeah. be fair, he's got quite a big platform yeah. on which to tout <laughs> himself. I, I just... You no, know, I, I, I don't, um, I just think, you know, look, good on him for creating this incredible uh, tech giant. But do I want him, you know, he pretty much already runs everything in my world. As soon as I have a thought, it appears on my Facebook timeline. There's a lot of weight loss products coming up on my Facebook <laughs> timeline. It's not kind. I just think That's, he's got... That is outrageous. Can I just say? <laughs> absolutely outrageous, that is. Yeah. But I, I just feel that, no, I feel he's got too much power. He, he pretty much runs the world anyway. He's probably now got more power than he actually would as, pre as president in some mm. way because he has completely unfettered power now. I did ask, actually, um, in preparation for the feature we're running next week, um, a few of the historians we have you know, in the team, and I said... What's the historical precedent for someone who has his financial wealth, um, his leadership, really, of the leading technologies of our age, and then potentially to become the commander-in-chief of the most powerful military in the world as well? You know, that combination of tech, wealth, and pol political and military power. 
And um, I won't tell you one of the answers that I got from the historian um, uh, community we have, but one was probably sort of a BC emperor in China yeah. at the time you discovered gunpowder. You know, that's how unprecedented uh, you know, it also, could be. Also, you think about this as a relatively young man who has had this extraordinary success, fair play to him, but he's probably somebody who nobody has ever really said no to, mm -hmm. or he has not had to work in the same parameters that a politician or a policymaker would have to, um, you know, there's no restraint on what he has to do. He is in command of his own universe, and it kind of is the universe at the moment. And what, what do you think about the T-shirts business? I, you know, he wears the same T-shirt every day, doesn't he? The, I think they're about 120, 130 pounds each, that. That's, that's, uh, that's part of the kind of tech culture mythology around these guys. I remember everybody said about, you know, Steve Jobs. Well, Steve Jobs basically wore a black polo neck for a huge amount of time and had all these uh, weird kind of quirks as well. I think a lot of these tech geniuses as well are very, they're very quirky people as well. I mean, I know we have Donald Trump, who we all agree is pretty on one end of the spectrum. I think these tech giants are on the spectrum as well. You know mm. what I mean? I don't think they're well-balanced, well-adjusted human beings either. And we've gone a bit off the topic, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> a bit. But to just get you, we'll give you the final word. Tax and these tech companies not really paying much tax is probably at the heart of public anxiety about the power that they have to yep. get around governments. Well, that's actually more of a European issue than a, an American one, because mm -hmm. the reason why they pay so little on the digital advertising they sell in Europe is because of all sorts of complicated arrangements concerning the intellectual property of the platform, be it Google or Facebook or mm -hmm. whatever. And um, that's why people are saying that hang on, you're selling these adverts in our countries. Why on earth aren't you paying a proper proportion of the profits you make as a result in our countries as well? And um, my argument is that um, the tech companies do need a special tax regime, but it should be one that we design for them, not what they design for us. And um, there's an analogy here with another kind of platform, an oil platform. Uh, when uh, oil companies, uh, whether in the North Sea or, or wherever, um, do their business, um, they have a special tax regime which recognises the fact that, yes, their technology is amazing, it does enable the whole industry to happen, but the resource actually in this case the oil, um, belongs to the country and therefore the tax should um, be collected accordingly. We should realise that um, advertising, it's all part of the so-called attention economy. What they're selling is the attention of their users to advertisers, right? That attention is a resource of each country and in some ways, if that can't be directly remunerated on a personal basis, um, if, if, if Facebook isn't paying you directly to look at their adverts, then that resource should be nationalised. Mm. Um, and maybe through some sort of digital advertising levy, 
there should be a fixed amount um, paid in tax on every sale, um, and that should go direct to the uh, national treasury in question, not through a ridiculously complex um, system where it all gets funneled through the Republic of Ireland and then some Caribbean islands, and yeah. and, and we never quite know you know, who who really owes what, uh, it's all far too opaque, tax the value created at source, some of which genuinely does belong to us, mm -hmm. and some of which, yeah, belongs to Zuckerberg, etc., because they invented some pretty good technology. But let's share it fairly. So if Jeremy Corbyn or Philip Hammond or John McDonnell or some treasurer, finance minister around the world is listening? Yes. Peter Franklin can be reached on Twitter. <laughs> Peter Franklin underscore, is that your um, Twitter? It handle? is. Peter yes. Franklin underscore. They can follow you and you'll tell them, you'll give them your tax plan. Well, that's. Uh, well, not in any great detail. But <laughs> I think, I think the good. principles yeah. are there. I think right? we should call it the eyeball tax. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? You should be in marketing. <laughs> Look, we keep saying we um, are going to do it in 20 minutes. I think we've gone over 30 again, and we've given our um, technician producer, uh, James Coney, a big problem, because I think when we laughed, I think we might have sent his... Uh, I think he's listening on headphones. Yes, he's nodding now. I think we might have given him... I don't know about eyeball tax. I think we might have done a ear hole. Um. I think his ears are bleeding. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, apologies for that. But thank you so much for listening, and... Um, We'll be back this time next week with a fresh guest and a fresh set of thoughts. Looking forward to seeing you then again. And I should try not to be rude about um, buildings behind you <laughs> and uh, misconstrued. And the journey of, of um, self-discovery and feminism continues. Yes, we have avoided one particular topic this week, haven't we? We will come back to it at some point. And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Peter, in particular, for joining us. Oh, and thank um, you. Thank you for the unpacked column that you write that we will link to in, in the blog. Goodbye. <laughs>